chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and if you're joining us for the first time, we are currently uh, doing studies in the life of Christ, and we're uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount, greatest message that Jesus ever preached, and we're just taking it apart, looking at uh, all the things that Jesus spoke about, and we're going to look at Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42. And I entitled the message this morning, Meekness in Action, although it could have had a couple of other titles. It could be called Going the Extra Mile. It could be called An Eye for an Eye and a Tooth for a Tooth, because all three of those titles are incorporated in verses 38 through 42. So again, it could have been entitled any one of those three. But this is the fifth contrast that Jesus makes between the scribes and the Pharisees' teaching and his own teaching. There was a huge difference many times between what the scribes and the Pharisees taught and what Jesus taught. This law of retaliation that he's going to speak about here in these verses was given to protect the innocent and to make sure that retaliation didn't occur beyond the offense. In other words, if somebody did not retaliate above and over the crime that was committed. But Jesus pointed out that while the rights of the innocent were protected by the law, the righteous didn't have to necessarily claim their rights. A righteous man would be characterized by humility and selflessness, which is meekness. Instead, he might go the extra mile to keep the peace. In the third beatitude, we learn that meekness involved refusing to retaliate. The Old Testament idea of meekness is a humble, godly, and unassertive mind that chooses, and that's the key word there, that chooses to receive injuries rather than return them. Because if we had our choice, we'd rather give them than receive them. But we choose to receive injuries because we are Christians, because we are Christ-like. Meekness causes the believer to patiently endure insults and injuries that he receives from the hands of his fellow man because he believes that God will vindicate them. We see an example of this in 2 Samuel 16, verses 5 through 13. Let me read the story to you. Now when King David came to Behurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. He was coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. That is, he was cursing David. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also, Shammai said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. He didn't deliver the kingdom of Absalom uh, into into, uh, Absalom's hands. Uh, Absalom stole the kingdom from his father. It says then, so now you are caught in your own evil because you're a bloodthirsty man, David. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. But King David said, What have I have to do with you, you sons of Uriah? Let him curse. Why? Because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all of his servants, See how my son who came from my own body seeks my life? How much more uh, now may this Benjamite, 
Let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shammai went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up the dust. So here's Shammai. He's making all these accusations to, at King David that he stole the kingdom from his son and that he's a bloodthirsty man and he's this and he's that and all of these things which were not true. And David's just going along with the program. He's not saying anything, but one of his men has had it and said, David, let me to go take off his head. David said, leave him alone. God's the one who's behind this. God's told him to do this. He says, God will take care of me. So he placed the whole situation in God's hands and said, God will, God will deal with him. So as David was nearing Berhurim, where, where the support for Saul was still strong, Shammai was on the hillside opposite of David and above him. So it was easy for him to throw stones and clumps of dirt at David and his men. David was exhausted and he was discouraged. And yet, he never shined brighter than when he allowed Shammai to go on attack, go on this attack on him. But Abishai, he was more than willing to kill this man who was attacking the king, but David wouldn't let him. Abishai said, get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. That's what he was you know, accusing David of. This is what Shammai was shouting, but David didn't retaliate. Shammai was blaming David for the death of Saul and his sons because David was officially in the Philistine army when they did. The fact that David was miles away from the battlefield when they were killed, that didn't matter to Shammai. He wasn't concerned about the truth. This loyal Benjamite probably blamed David for the death of Saul's son Ishbosheth, who inherited Saul's throne, and also Abner, Saul's loyal commander. And of course, he blamed him for the death of Uriah the Hittite as well. So Shammai says to David, you have come to ruin because you're a man of blood. Shammai, though, was breaking the law while venting his hatred on David. Because it says in Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. But David's attitude was one of submission. Because you see, he accepted what Shammai was doing as coming from the hand of God. David had already said, though, that he'd accept anything that the Lord would send him. And now he was proving it. When David considered that he was an adulterer, a murderer who deserved to die, yet God let him live. He said, why should I complain about somebody throwing rocks and dirt at me? And if Absalom, David's own son, was out to kill him, he says, why shouldn't a total stranger be punished? Or why should a total stranger be punished for slandering the king and throwing things at him? You see, David had faith that God would one day balance everything out and take care of the people like Absalom and Shammai. David may have been thinking of Deuteronomy 32, 35, where it says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. When David got his throne back, he pardoned Shammai. But later on, Solomon restricted him to Jerusalem where he could watch him. But when Shammai arrogantly overstepped his bounds, he was arrested and he was executed. So you see, in this contrast that we're going to see here about retaliation, we'll see it's an emphasis on meekness, an emphasis that the scribes and the Pharisees definitely did not like. Why? Because their teaching was just the opposite when it came to retaliation. There's a beautiful prayer that David gives in Psalm 109, 1 through 4, when somebody speaks lying words against you. Listen to what David said. He said, do not keep silent, O God of my praise. 
For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers. Listen to what he says. But I give myself to prayer. He says, though they're lying about me and they're accusing me of all kinds of things, he says, I'm not going to say a word. What I'm going to do, I'm going to pray for them. It teaches us that prayer is the safest way of replying to words of hatred and deceit and lies against you. Now let's look at this, uh, the study for this morning. Look at verse 38. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This doctrine here is found in Exodus 21:24, Leviticus 24:20, and Deuteronomy 19:21. It's important to know that all of these verses are found in the context, that is, in the setting, in the background that speaks of legal action. It was the sentence of a judge. It was not to be, it was not personal actions. In other words, this doctrine was given as a rule to the judges to regulate their decisions on court cases. These scriptures are not for the regulations of individuals to do what they want to do in retaliation against somebody. These were only a guide for judges. Now, this doctrine that Jesus first referred to here in this contrast was honorable. They're only, again, they were only a guide for judges. This doctrine that Jesus referred to here in this contrast was of honorable character, and it was set in the the setting of a court of law where legal action was to be taken and where it was to be given. The high character of this doctrine is seen in the fact that Jesus doesn't find any fault with the rule as it's applied to judges, and he doesn't take it upon himself to repeal it, that is, to change it or remove it. The judgment that the judges were to make according to this doctrine was honest and it was fair. It wasn't too lenient. It wasn't too harsh. And it gave the judgment according to the crime. The punishment fit the crime. A person was punished according to his crime. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing can be more fair than that in a court of law. Just get what the person has coming to them. The problem today is that people don't like to punish who do wrong based on the principle of fairness. That is, getting what's fair. Today, there's a lot of unfairness in punishment in the courts today. The punishment goes from one extreme to the other. The punishment is either too lenient or it's too harsh. And today, sentiment, that is, today, feelings and emotions overrides sound judgment, especially when it comes to capital punishment. But that's the only fair way to punish a murderer. A life for a life. And it's God's way for punishing a murderer. But this doctrine Jesus quoted from the Old Testament here, it sets up a fairness that you can't make any better. You can't do something better than Jesus does. The corruption in this doctrine by the scribes and the Pharisees is seen in the way they taught it in Jesus' day, the way they applied the doctrine. Now, the doctrine was a good one when it was applied correctly to the behavior of the individual in dealing with the wrongs that he experienced. Now, instead of restricting the doctrine to the judges where it belonged in a court setting, what the Jews did, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they extended it. They broadened it to the the private citizens. And they made it the rule for people to take revenge. 
The religious leaders had twisted its meaning and purpose by giving it a false application. They suggested that it allowed each person to take out their own style of revenge on their enemies. They could do what they want to them. If your neighbor strikes you and you lose an eye, then you go and you do the same to them. So a spirit of retaliation was made allowances for. This greatly corrupted the doctrine. But why would religious leaders corrupt the law like this? Just to, retalify, just to justify retaliation. Well, for at least two reasons. How about, first of all, the flesh? Hey, it was the, it's the nature of the flesh to want to retaliate when somebody hurts you. Hey, it's an automatic reaction. And this is a fact. I want to get even. I want to hurt that person that hurt me. And I think we can all agree to this evil desire to get even when somebody messes with us. It's pretty much the law of the land today, and it's pretty much encouraged by society today. But in the Christian life, it is clearly forbidden. It is a big no-no. Today in society's thinking, if you don't fight back when you're wronged, oh, they, they, they think you're weak, and they think you're cowardly. So changing what you believe to obey the flesh, that's no surprise. The flesh is very strong, and man, if you're not grounded and rooted in the Word of God, it is going to overrule you. It is going to do what it wants. The flesh wants its own justice. And your flesh affects what you believe a lot more than you would like to admit to. Secondly, how about favor? The Jews, the, the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to stay in good favor with the people. This is another reason that would motivate the religious leaders to corrupt this law and to justify personal retaliation. It would be to stay in the favor of the people by overlooking their bad behavior, their evil behavior. You see, the Jewish leaders cared more about staying in and getting in good with the people rather than pleasing God. And there are a lot of people today, even in the church, that are like that. Pastors, leaders, watering down their Bible teaching, compromising their conviction to conform to the people's unholy, unbiblical behavior rather than upholding the holy standards of God's truth in order to keep their job, keep their church, and stay popular with the people. We see this more and more every day. You probably heard this on the news at APU, June 24th this year. Chaplain and former, here's the headlines, chapter and former head of the National Association of Evangelicals, Dr. Kevin Manoia, shocked Christian leaders last week when he testified in favor of a California resolution directing pastors and counselors to affirm LBGT identities and behavior, encouraging us to affirm their lifestyle. Thus says the Lord. Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not diminish a word. The word diminish means to lessen, to withhold, to scrape off. You don't scrape off the parts of the Bible that you don't like like you scrape off burnt parts of toast. 
You don't lessen the word of God to meet what society is doing in the lifestyles that are so-called lifestyles that are being approved. You don't hold the word back to stay in good with the people and stay in favor and to be found, oh, they're right on target. God says, you do not diminish a word, Jeremiah, that I tell you to tell the people. It is the same today. And I believe that if churches continue to preach God's word in all of its undiminished power and truth, they will shrivel up and go away. And the ones that that conform to the worldly standards, oh, they'll grow and become popular. Jesus confronted the attitude of getting uh, getting even in a very strong way. When he corrected the way the, the religious leaders applied this law, Jesus taught it in a way, he taught it a way to behave that's much better and, and decent than the one that the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching. And you know what? That's always what happens when Jesus is brought in to deal with a subject. He always makes it better. He always makes it right. The standard of behavior greatly improves, uh, improves when Jesus is involved. Let's look at verse 39a now. Jesus went on to say, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says not to resist an evil person? This command is the beginning of the correction that Jesus will make about the way the scribes and the Pharisees messed up this law. This is a command against spite and revenge by a person. Now, the Bible does not support revenge. That's the Lord's job. That's the Lord's doing when we've been done wrong. Listen to Paul in Romans 12, 17 through 19. The Apostle Paul said, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus here, in, in this part of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is correcting the scribes and the Pharisees' idea that getting even was okay and that a person should retaliate in the same way they were treated. That is, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You hit me, I hit you. But Jesus' command here not to resist evil has been grossly misinterpreted and misapplied. So you have to be careful that you don't make this this command mean that we should not oppose evil at all. This command, like the principle that speaks of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, has a context. There's a setting for it. It has to be interpreted in view of the context in which Jesus was talking about. Now, Jesus is not saying that we should never oppose evil in general. Not resist evil has to be taken and applied in the right situation. Or else it can be interpreted as a call to uh, encourage evil in general. And to not see this command in the right setting, it could be taken to not oppose temptation, but yield to it. Don't resist evil, yield to it. The Bible clearly teaches the opposite. James tells us to resist the devil. Peter says, resist him and steadfast in the faith. Now, This command cannot be applied to policemen or military personnel. It does not apply to supporting pacifism. This command does not go against a nation for going to war against an evil nation. This command does not oppose church discipline. This command does not mean we're not to resist evil men when they threaten our families. Jesus did not intend to teach that we're to stand by and watch our families be harmed or murdered or or, or be murdered ourselves rather than try to resist. This command does not nullify the law of its penalties. 
This command does not mean we're to let criminals go unreported. In its context, it simply means we are not to be spiteful and retaliatory when it comes to personal injuries and insults. So so to misapply Jesus' command in other situations is to misapply it as badly as the scribes and the Pharisees did about the law for an an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And a lot of people are good, really good, at perverting and distorting Scripture in order to support their false doctrines and their own agendas. To make it say what they want it to say. And I remember in the early years of Calvary Chapel, West Covina, and I remember a lot of us went out street witnessing, and we went to a park. And I remember I saw this guy, and he was out there having a great time. He was smoking dope and just enjoying the park and everything around him. And I decided to go and and share the gospel with him. And, oh, he was just a total agreement with everything that I said. And I said, well, you know, I I don't know that God would really be so glad that that you're, you're getting high. And he said, oh, brother, the, the, the Bible says that I can smoke marijuana. And I said, really? Yeah, he says, and I get closer to God when I get high. <laughs> and he said, in Genesis, it says that God gave us every herb-bearing seed. <laughs> okay, yeah, the Bible does say that, but brother, you're taking it out of context. And he says, oh, no, he says, you know, I, and, and you know, he went on with his justification for it. But you see, you can take any verse out of the Bible and make it say what you want it to say. You got to read it and take it in its context for what it was, for what it means. And then now, after Jesus is talking about this doctrine and, and setting it aright, He then gives some examples to help us to see better how to avoid retaliating. Again, meekness in action. How to react in situations when we're wronged. The examples show us what not to resist evil truly means as Jesus said it. The examples given to us here, many of them are are common uh, aggravations that we experience in everyday life. They tell us to keep a cool head. And to not try and get, get even with every wrong that's done to us. If somebody criticizes you, don't criticize back. If somebody offends you, don't offend them. If somebody cheats you, don't cheat them. If someone is rude to you, don't be rude to them. We, we read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7. Speaking about lawsuits with one another. He says, why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and cheat even your fellow believers. Paul said, you know, if it's not that big, you know, just just take the lumps. Go for it. Don't, don't, you know, especially between believers, don't blaspheme the gospel. Don't blaspheme Christianity. Don't be a bad witness to, to the world around us. We have the wisdom of the scriptures. We have the wisdom of the spirit of God to settle all disputes. And we should be able to. Verse 39b, as he goes on. So he said, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Here's 39b. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, this is more of a principle than an illustration. Turning the cheek simply means the opposite of retaliation. We're not to strike back in retaliation. 
It's the Christian's duty to bear it in the spirit of meekness. It's not saying that a woman is not to fight off a man who is trying to assault her. Fighting off an attacker is not retaliation. It's fighting to stay alive. This application doesn't forbid rebuke either. Remember when Jesus was unjustly hit in the face? He didn't strike back, but he did rebuke the person who hit him. So you see, turning the cheek is more of an attitude of the heart rather than a physical posture. Turning the cheek is a principle that says, I will not fight back and retaliate, but I'm going to leave the judgment of what's to be done to the Lord. Next example, verse 40. Jesus said, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now, here's an example. Here's a case where you might not be wronged, wronged. Okay, somebody hasn't done you wrong, but you've wronged somebody else. And in court, you've been found guilty of doing wrong to the other person. And then in judgment, you have to give up your coat or, your, or some other object in this case, you know, in this example. But in, in being wrong, maybe you're, you're fined. You have to make restitution in some way. But you definitely don't like it. This example says here, don't retaliate, but be of a spirit that would also give up the cloak. Give whatever's asked of you. This example talks about not retaliating when you're in the wrong. Because sometimes, even though we're in the wrong, hey, we still want to, we still want to retaliate. We still want to do something when things don't go our way in court. And it's the flesh's habit to feel this way. It's a natural reaction of the flesh. And, it, and you've seen it maybe in other examples, but I've seen it in this example before. It's like when a person gets evicted from an apartment or their home because they couldn't make the payments or they're just troublesome tenants and, and, and they're justly and legally evicted then the person losing their apartment they sometimes retaliate by damaging it destroying it before they leave jesus example says don't do that the next example is verse 41 and whoever compels you to go one mile go with him too now in these in christ's time Roman law gave a soldier the right to stop a civilian on the street and, and, and make them carry their pack for a mile. And, and the purpose of this law was to relieve the soldier because the pack could be heavy, you know, and he's, maybe he's coming back from war or whatever it might be, he's, you know, and he's carrying this heavy pack and he needs a break. Well, if that Roman soldier said, hey, hey, hey you, you come over here, carry my pack for me. Well, Jesus wasn't saying here to do it. You see, the thing is with the, with the Jewish people and those who were around, that, that civilian that was asked to carry that pack, it not only caused them a great inconvenience, maybe they were in a hurry to get somewhere, they, were, they, they had an appointment, or maybe they were working or doing you know, something that was important, and then for a Roman soldier, hey, you, stop what you're doing, or hey, you, come over here and carry my pack for me for a mile. Uh, it made, it, it, it made the, 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 the task even more despicable because... The, they, they hated the Romans. They were oppressed by the Romans. And here the people that were oppressing them says, hey, you, I want you to carry my pack. I mean, that even made it more oppressive. It made it more despicable, more hating. The Roman soldier was probably never more hated than when he forced somebody to carry his pack. 
But even so, a burden in the Lord should be carried willingly. Jesus said, not only willingly, but do it with kindness. When we're forced to go one mile, we should willingly go too. When we're robbed of some of our cherished freedom, we should surrender even more of it rather than retaliate. That's what Jesus is saying. When we do, when we do that, we are being obedient to our Lord. And we're being a witness to His righteousness, knowing that in Christ we have a sweeter freedom than the world could ever take from us. So this example doesn't mean that we should give whatever anyone asks of us. It's about retaliation. It's about animosity. It means that we are not to retaliate for some wrong done to us by refusing to help that person when they need it. And I think we can all attest to it. Retaliation is a big problem. Even among church members. The scribes and the Pharisees tried to pamper the people's desire to retaliate by distorting this law of the courts on penalties for crime. This only increased animosity among the people. But you see, Jesus in his teaching here would stop this distorted uh, distorted teaching and the problems that it created. The next example, verse 42. Jesus said, give him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Possessiveness. In other words, it's mine. I don't want to lend it to my neighbor. You know, he might ruin it or he might damage it. And I paid a lot of money for it and all those things. Possessiveness is another trait of our fallen nature. One of the first things we hear kids say, it's mine. We grow up with that same possessiveness. It's mine. We don't like to give things up that belong to us. We forget that nothing really belongs to us. And that we're only stewards of what God has given us. Of what belongs to him. But as far as the world is concerned, hey, we have the right to keep what belongs to us and use it the way we want to and do what we want with it. But that right like all of our rights, should be laid on the altar of obedience to Jesus if needed. When somebody wants to borrow something, we shouldn't turn them away. We should lend it to them. Hey, the person wouldn't have asked for it if they didn't need it. Now, that doesn't mean that we're required to respond to every foolish request. What's also implied here is that we should offer to give what's needed as soon as we know that there's a need. If we see that somebody needs something rather than waiting until they come and ask or they're just, you know, having a a difficult time. Hey, look, brother, I see you're having a hard time and and hey, I want to help you and here's, here's a tool to help or here's my hands or whatever it might be. Jesus is talking about generosity here. A generosity that really wants to help the other person. It's not a symbolic gesture that I do because it makes my conscience feel better. Oh, man, I got to go. Oh, I just, you know, here. Because if I don't, it's going to bother me all day. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about generosity that really wants to help the other person. So in the spirit in which Jesus is teaching here, It's one of kindness. It's one of 
of turning the cheek. It's, a, it's the attitude, it's the spirit that Abraham showed when he gave the best land to his nephew Lot. It's the spirit that Joseph had when he hugged and he kissed his brothers who had so terribly wronged him. It's the spirit that that wouldn't let David kill Saul in the cave when he had a chance, even though Saul was out to kill him. It was the spirit that led to Elisha feeding the enemy Assyrian army. It's the same spirit that led Stephen to pray for those who were stoning him to death. And it's the same spirit that we saw Jesus say on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it's the spirit of every Christian who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, seeks to perfect, to be perfect, even as our holy heavenly Father is perfect. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. God, thank you for your spirit. Father, who teaches us your word, who empowers us to do your word, God who leads us and guides us in the ability to fulfill, God, your wills and your command. And Father, it's only in the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live the scriptures, that we can obey the commands of God, that can can turn our hearts to the Lord. And Father, we pray this morning that it would minister to each and every one of us, God. Lord, it's something that we all need to do. It's something that we all need to live by, God. I think it's something that we all need to improve in in our own personal lives, Lord. Father, that we would be better witnesses for Christ. Father, it's what the world needs to see more of, Lord. They need to see less of me and more of you, Father. More of Jesus. They need to hear more about Christ and less about me. Maybe you're here this morning and, and it, it expresses exactly, it voices exactly who you are and the difficulties you might be going through. Maybe you have an anger problem or a revenge problem, whatever it might be. But Jesus can change you. He can change anyone. But it begins when Jesus takes over a life. When he comes into the heart. And he begins to to lead you and guide you and to give you the ability to do the things that he had. God, God will never ask you to do anything that he didn't enable you to do. God does his part. We need to do our part. And the only way that this new life comes around is through the new birth. You must be born again. And if the Holy Spirit has spoken to you this morning and you recognize, I need to be born again. I need to be and I want to be more like Christ. As the worship team leads us in a time of worship, If you want to receive Christ, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. When the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.